Thanks for taking time to listen to this episode of The Real Rescue Podcast. Take a minute to go to therealrescue.com to check out these and other great deals from our sponsors here at The Real Rescue. This episode of The Real Rescue Podcast is brought to you by Breeze Eastern, the world's only dedicated helicopter hoist and winch provider. SR3 Rescue Concepts, because you don't know what you don't know. And rescueswimmershop.com, official high quality apparel featuring the silhouette. Breeze Eastern, they dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. SR3 Rescue Concepts is a training company that can help your helicopter training. They train daytime, nighttime, aerial firefighting, hoist, longline, fast rope, rappel, and more. They can assist your program with standardization and safety checks or just an FAA annual refresher. With the certified flight instructor pilots and experienced crew, they are ready to help your agency keep up to date with current techniques, rules, regulations, and equipment. Plus, right now, SR3 is offering 10% off anything in their web store with the promo code, all capital letters, REALRESCUE, R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q. Plus, they are offering 10% from their partners, Petzl, and their equipment. All you got to do is send an email to info at sr3rescueconcepts.com. Mention this podcast, The Real Rescue Podcast, and they'll take care of the rest. 15 years ago, photographer and Coast Guard rescue swimmer number 526, Chris Razor, created an iconic photograph. This photograph depicted the silhouette of a helicopter rescue swimmer reaching down for an outstretched hand in need against the American flag backdrop. The image went viral and became a symbol worldwide for the rescue community and the people they help. Its wild popularity inspired Chris to launch RescueSwimmerShop.com, a web store offering official high-quality apparel featuring his evocative image, The Silhouette. T-shirts, hats, patches, and stickers featuring The Silhouette are available at RescueSwimmerShop.com, including the flagship design, So Others May Live. Follow Chris and his story on Instagram with the handle at Rescue Swimmer Shop. And if you are a rescue swimmer, support rescue swimmers, or just tell people you are one at the bar, this gear is definitely for you. When you get to the website, rescueswimmershop.com, enter the promo code, all lowercase, one word, rescue, R-E-S-C-U-E, for 10% off your order. I'm extremely grateful to be able to talk to another U.S. Coast Guard rescue swimmer. His stories that he brings to us in just five years of being in the Coast Guard are amazing. And even since the Coast Guard, the stuff that he has done outside of that blows my mind. It is awesome to hear. 
So please welcome our next guest, United States Coast Guard rescue swimmer number 453, Dr. Todd Davis. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard rescue swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Real Rescue Podcast. Today, I've got another rescue swimmer with me. Oh, not just anyone. This is United States Coast Guard rescue swimmer number 453, Mr. Todd Davis. What's up, dude? What's up, man? Dude, I am pumped to have you on. How are you? I'm doing really good. This is so cool. I'm really glad that you're doing this. Thanks, man. I, dude, I, like I told you, I I, I love this stuff. <laughs> it's yeah, well, I've been really, I've been really, it's been it's just a strange thing. I was telling you earlier when we talked, but it's uh you have those emotions that you have when you when you're part of this unique and sort of elite group, right? And but um hearing some of the podcasts from some of the guys that you know I knew or or was at swimmer school with, you know, um has been really it just man, it just brings back the smells and the tastes and the you know the sensations of of what it was, you just remember so much. It's been really fun. And I, I've just been loving listening to your, the podcast and loving all the guys tell their stories. So, I mean, you know, it was really, I kind of was like, oh man, should I reach out to this dude and be like, should I, you know, I would love to tell some stories. You know, I was just like, <laughs> it was a weird thing because I didn't really know you, but I mean, obviously, I don't know. It was just, it's been really fun. So I really appreciate doing this. Well, I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you reaching out to me, uh, you know, and this is for anybody that's a, you know, rescue swimmer, rescue man out there. I, I'm like, I love hearing these stories. So and like, come on. But uh, mm. so today I'll tell you what, let, let's, so I, I don't even know much about you again. We, we've never really met um, other than, you know, just through the brotherhood. So if you don't mind, introduce yourself to the world and a little bit of background about you, how you became a rescue swimmer and in the Coast Guard. Yeah, I mean, I sort of came in in a strange way. I mean, I was at the University of Idaho. I was studying civil engineering. Um, I thought I was doing really good. And then I met with my advisor, like in October, and he was like, you're failing. Um, you need to pick another degree. <laughs> and I was like, what? And, you know, and I made some poor choices, social wise and doing some stuff. So anyways, I came home for Christmas, I think it was Thanksgiving break in like 1994. And my parents were like, well, you know, you need to figure out something to do. And we were like on the, we were like just in the cusp of the first Gulf War. Oh, so, yeah. you know, I had friends going from high school that I'd gone to high school with. And of course they were coming back in boxes and we were celebrating their life in the gym. And, you know, I, did, I was like, man, this is, that's kind of throat throbbing. I mean, I'm not going to, I don't know. You know. I grew up as a hunter, grew up as a fisherman. But we also had a summer swim team at my little tiny town. I'm from a little town in North Idaho called Kamii. It's oh basically my God, in the get heart. away. Kamii? Yeah, in the heart of the Nespers Indian Reservation. What? Oh, I have no idea what that is. Not a clue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, and if you, I mean, I would, I would, I would guess that hardly anybody does. There's about a town of 900. Oh. And anyways, <laughs> you know, if you blink, you miss it. But it is on the Clearwater River. And so lots of people from all over the world come and do whitewater kayaking and rafting. I mean, it's a pretty big whitewater uh, place. Um, 
so we, I mean, we grew up on the river and swimming was, our, you know, we had to be pretty strong to survive on the river. So, I mean, I swam, you know, I mean, I knew how to swim and I, we used to, there was caves and things in the river that you could go. And, and so usually in the summer we spent, you know, on the water. Um, so, you know, that's how those sort of all wrapped up. And I, I mean, I, I, my parents and I just sort of talked and it was like, maybe a military service would get you situated, but the right one. And I, I remember going to an air show in Seattle in like February at the Boeing field. It was some kind of a, I don't know, anniversary or something. And so we, uh, some friends and I went to Boeing field and there was a rescue swimmer there and um, they were doing drops in the, in the Puget sound and showcasing all their stuff. And of course, when they came back and then you could go and visit. And I mean, you know, I wasn't like, I was a college student. I wasn't in super great shape and whatever, but I, I remember thinking like, Oh man, that, I could do that. You know, like, so that's something I would like to do. <laughs> yeah. And my friends were like, dude, that guy's in wicked good shape, bro. Like you're like, come on, man, you can't even get up and down the basketball court four times without getting out of the breath. And I'm like, but I used to do, you know, like it was like, so anyways, <laughs> we went up and talked to the guy and it was the same kind of attitude. It was like, yeah, well, you know, you got to be in really good shape and look by the looks of it kind of like, oh, I'm not sure, you know, maybe like Marine science technician would be something you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with any of that. We got, we got good friends that are uh, MSDs. Yeah. Like. <laughs> and I mean, it was the strangest thing. I didn't know any of this stuff, but they were like, you know, but they're all nice, you know, and they hand out some stickers or whatever. And like, yeah, have a good day. But that's some, that sort of struck, struck a chord with me. And so like, I don't know what happened, but like the next week I was at MEPS signing up for the United States Coast Guard with my dad, who was super proud. I think he was just happy to, you know, finally I was going to be out of their hair and doing something that I couldn't get out of. <laughs> um, Spokane, Washington, man, maps like 1995. Next minute, March, I'm in, you know, K May doing it. And of course I had some, you know, I had background swimming. So that when the swim test came, I whipped it out and the guys were like, oh man, you know, you, you did pretty good at swimming. Uh, have you ever, th what, what thing are you going to think about doing? And I was like, man, I don't know. They said Marine science technician would be good. And they're like, oh, man, you don't want to do that. You know, you, you're in the you're in the bitter cold for years. I'm like, well, man, I don't know. You know, you know, you remember that whole scene. It was just yeah. chaos, right? Utter chaos. So I didn't know. Um, they and I scored a pretty decent, you know, on the on the um, tests. I think it was pretty high. So, I mean, I, they could, you know, they were like, you could do whatever you want. Just pick something and do it. And I was like, well, I don't know. So they sent me on a ship. I was on the midget out of Seattle. Um, that was an inter interesting time, you know, like being out at sea was cool. Um, and we had, of course, the, the guys from Alaska, Kodiak piggybacking or Port Angeles piggybacking. And so we got to meet with them. And there were some really cool guys. I wish I could remember the guy's name. But the first guy, the first rescue swimmer that I ever met, his name was Dave something. He was a bigger dude out of Port Angeles strong i mean and he was up every morning like push up sit up pull up i mean in waves that were just tipping the ship all up inside and i was like jesus christ you know this guy is insane uh, um but i mean i just asked him one day if i could come get up with him when i was wasn't on shift and he was like yeah man get up here and i mean he just murdered me you know like <laughs> I, guess, I, I remember like dude the guy was just whipping out stuff like whatever and he was like yeah let's go let's go let's go and i remember the next day i was just like walking around not even being just to, like everything i just couldn't like my legs i couldn't feel my arms i couldn't feel i'm just like oh jesus if this is what it's gonna be i'm not sure i'm gonna ever be cut out for this so but anyways you know i got on the list and 
two years went by on the midget. And finally, they transferred me off the midget to the small boat station in Seattle, which was really cool and fun. I was only there six months and a guy named Thor Wentz called me or called the station. Thor. And he was like, we had somebody drop out or something and you're next on the list. Are you ready? And I was thinking to myself, am I ready for what? Like, I'm not supposed, I mean, I was slated not to like, you know, six months later, but I'd been in the gym, you know, I've been doing stuff. I've been, I've been doing what Dave told me to do, you know, so I was getting ready, but my stomach just turned and I was like, you know, are you ready? And even the name Thor Wentz was like intimidating. You know, I was like, oh God, there's a guy named Thor and he's going to be at this place. It's just like, I don't know, man, this is just not, this is not panning out. But anyways, my, you know, the station chief was like, man, you gotta be ready. So do you, you know, are you ready to go or what? I'm like, yeah, I'm ready. Let's just do this. So nice. I went, you know, and it was everything that everyone says, except worse and harder and you know <laughs> and just chaos mind-numbing we of course i was i was in the old day it's funny i say that but i mean i was in the old day where we had that shitty pool yeah, and the too. shitty facility oh man you know like and the dorms were shitty the donut I mean, oh yeah man it was crazy you know but i i loved every minute of it it was just great and there was, you know, there was six of us that started and I, we had a, we had a, the first girl, one of the first females that came, she was super fit. Um, it was crazy. You know, she just, she was super fit. She just, uh, it just didn't work for her. And then, and that was sad because we were really rooting for her. And then we had another dude that was just, you know, not ready. So there was four of us that went all the way through. And I mean, I was probably one of the, I mean, there was, Eric was just super strong. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, Thor was intimidating. Uh, Jace, uh, Farmer was intimidating. Uh, Yates was intimidating. Man, they were all just crazy, insane in shape, you know, and oh, yeah. just they they had to get you ready. And we I, I feel like we were a good class. It was it was it was work. But, you know, I look back at it now and think. What a, what a great experience, you know, and those guys knew what they were doing. And it was such a, when I look at things now as a professor at a university, you know, we look at curriculum and development and how things work, you know, that, that school had it right. They figured yeah. it out how to, how to manufacture a solid athlete and somebody who could withstand anything that came up, you know, it was just a really good school. You know, I'm really glad you just said, uh, like, they, the curriculum was amazing, which I totally agree with, and how they created an amazing athlete. I just had, I just talked to Travis Mayer, and he's an elite CrossFit athlete. And I, I was telling him the same thing Bob Watson told to me. He's like, we're elite athletes. We're just not paid for it. And that is, Absolutely. like, so much of the truth. It's ridiculous. The, what we're required to do and beat is, is yeah. that. You know, I just talked to another guy. Uh, so Spencer Manson talks about flying out, you know, doing basically rope pull-ups up the back of the boat and then getting his butt kicked like three or four times and then getting one girl off the boat, get back in the helicopter, having to fly back to shore, refuel, turn around and go back out. So that was yeah. his swim rope climb to two hour rest to back into now I'm swimming in the ocean for four more people. Like, come on, man. 
Yeah. That's a workout and then a workout with a little rest in between. Fuel, no, ready for the yeah. next one. <laughs> I mean, there's anyway. no doubt. Like I look at, I, uh, I haven't been back obviously to North Carolina, but I've seen the images that they've posted on social media with the new, with the new facility. And I mean, it's out of this world. I mean, you know, legit. it's a, it's a legit athletic training center that I don't, I mean, I don't even know if there's athletic training centers that are at the at division one universities that are this complex that create an all around athlete. If you go to old miss football or old miss basketball or, you know, university of Mississippi stuff, it's, they are producing that type of athlete for just basketball. And they do things that are just, but at, at this school, I mean, you're producing an at a, a global elite athlete to to work in just about any environment, whether it be hot, freezing cold, you know, and doing everything with, with in, in a chaotic situation with the downwash of a helicopter and the the I don't know. There's not I don't think there's anything like it in the world. I mean, I just don't, you know, it's just crazy. And then you have the type of people that that want to put themselves in this position. It's insane. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah. And it's been really great seeing your podcast and seeing what people have gone and done with themselves outside of this, you know, unique opportunity. They've really taken the opportunity. Uh, there's a guy, I can't remember his name, but he's doing like, you know, like rescues from a training for people that like, could get them in shape to be yeah. super trained. And there's guys that are doing like um, just, you know, amazing things. And I'm, I think it's sort of a catalyst, you know, for, opening your mindset for what, what, what potentials you have and what possibilities you have. I certainly, I mean, look, man, if it wasn't for that, if it wasn't for being in a rescue swimmer program, I, I would have never been what I want or what I did. That, that, that program made me hungry for success. Like I really wanted to succeed. And one of the things that was really lingering was that I didn't finish college. I mean, the only intent of going to the Coast Guard was to get the GI Bill and come back and finish college because I, the, the failing thing for me was a huge issue. Um, and I mean, I didn't go back into civil engineering, but I did go back and complete not only my undergraduate degree, but then I went and got a master's degree. And then when I got a PhD, you know, so I feel like, but I would have never done that without the mindset of what being a rescue swimmer was. It was about, a ta- you know, accomplishing those tasks. I remember Thorwent's always saying, you know, keep your composure and finish the job. And that has stuck with me. I've got it written down up here. Oh, in my that's back. great. Yeah. Oh. That was what he used, to, he used to always tell us that in the pool, you know, because we, it was tough. You remember, I mean, for shit's sake, they had you throat choking underwater. And I mean, you know, you come up and you would be like, you'd lose your composure and you wouldn't finish the job. So he would always say, you know, like, keep it comp-. he would look at us and right in the face, you know, he would like grab our face mask, <laughs> grab the, keep your composure and do the, fucking job you know that was, <laughs> and i was like okay so i mean obviously i'm in a tax-based uh facility so i can't have everything but it was like yeah you know and that's that has such resonated with me and i think it's done it's resume resonated with me with all the things that i do with my family life now and my child and just my work here at the university and things that we do and my work here at the university is sort of interesting i teach sport and rec, uh, sport and recreation classes for those that want to go out in the field and be parks and rec or, you know, sport management. But I also direct the outdoor program, which we take pretty elite, or we take a comprehensive look at outdoor uh, pursuits. And we go on pretty extensive expeditions all over the South uh, from the Rio Grande to Horn Island, um, backpacking the, the Buffalo River Canyon. I mean, so we're taking students out 
and doing things. And, you know, I've sort of, I've sort of supplanted that thought process and that philosophy into their, their roles about, you know, for some of these students, it's going to be the first time in a tent or, or first time in a kayak or first time in a raft. And so I've sort of taken some of the things that I've learned from the rescue swimmer program and, and, you know, sort of embedded them in what we do here at the university to get students out and tackle and accomplish goals. And it's nothing to the level of what we did, you know, in the Coast Guard. But for some of these students, it's a huge accomplishment to hike 18 miles on the Buffalo River. And it's a huge accomplishment for to kayak. We do this big trip down the Rio Grande every spring break uh, through Boquillas Canyon. And it's eight days in a canoe. You know, you, you shit in a bucket. Oh. It's complete 100% wilderness. We've Can had. I tell you, my wife is out. She's out. <laughs> yeah, out. I mean, She's but out. you know, it's a, it's a, it's that's out for a lot of people, and so to accomplish that goal, you know, you got to stay composed and got to finish our job, which is get from here to here. So, Keep yeah, it's it, interesting. You know? What wait, what is it? One more time. Say it one more time. Stay Keep composed. Your, stay composed. Keep, Keep your composure and finish the job. And finish the job. Keep your composure and finish the job. Man, I like that. I'm gonna. I'm writing that one down too. Don't That's forget, going on man, social for, media. Thor wins. Thor wins, though. And too bad <laughs> Thor's not on social media anymore because he was a good dude to catch up with. I know he's somewhere in North Carolina. I've been trying to reach out. But he, of all the guys, I mean, Yates and Farmer and, uh, oh, there was a few others. But, I mean, those guys were great, you know. But Thor was, he was a, um, he was just a different level of leadership, you know. Like, yeah. and then, of course, <laughs> We get our we we go we go, we all get our our um, stations, you know, and they announced that Thor Wentz is coming to Cape Cod with me. He's going to be our first class. And I, I mean, I just remember thinking, <laughs> oh, my God, I cannot get away from this guy. <laughs> but, you oh, know, obviously hilarious. it's a different situation when you're at the base. And it was I, I really appreciated Thor's leadership. I really appreciated his perspective, his insight. He I mean, you know, he was a. He was just a good leader and an all around, uh, you know, respected person in, in our field. And it was just really good to be to see somebody from the classroom to the field and how that worked. Yeah, yeah that's, that's great. It's amazing what good leadership does. It's awesome. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. But, all right. So now let's uh, let's kind of get into a little bit. Do you remember your very first case? Yeah, I do. Oh, all right. Heavy. So it was a strange case. Um, the very first case I had was in December and um, it was cold, right? I mean, obviously station Cape Cod was just a freezing cold weather billet, but it was a father and son that went out for a fishing uh, a pot to get some, some fish crab pots and didn't return. So of course we went out and it's the first time in my life that I've ever seen parts and pieces of the ocean frozen. Oh, there were yeah. like, yeah, it was parts. And even that, even our pilots were like, Hey dude, like it's frozen over this section, you know, like y'all need, need to be careful when you get out. And I was like, Oh shit. <laughs> but I mean, you know, I'd been doing, obviously getting prepared for this. And I remember the flight mechanic being a young guy too. Um, and his name was Dave blonde guy, good looking guy. And anyways, we were like, you know, we were just all kind of, you know, it's your first thing, dude, you just got signed off a few months ago and this is it. So it was a sad situation, though, because we, we did locate the bodies and they were, of course, frozen. And um, 
one guy had just, you could tell he was in his Gumby suit, but it didn't get all the way zipped up. And, you know, I it was face over, turn him over. Um, I mean, you know, so that was, it was a weird thing. It was like, oh, he didn't make it. This is the start of my, you know, career here at Station Cape Cod. You're, this is probably what's going to be happening is this is the situation, you know, like you're probably not going to get many people. And I remember being really cold and working really fast, could not get this victim in the, the, you know, I could not get him in the basket. I got on the radio, asked for the litter. They're like, man, we're running low, man. You're just going to have to do what you can. I don't know if we have enough time to transition the basket and the litter. Can you get him, you know? So it just, it was a tough situation to get him in that basket to get him up. Um, We didn't have enough. So I, I imagine it was because he as a, a, a dead guy now from he's frozen, frozen, frozen like with stiff. water inside, yeah, inside the Gumby. So, you know, I, so was, you I had to cut. Yeah, you can't flex yeah. him inside the, the rescue basket. So he's like literally stiff as a board and trying to stiff as a board, completely rigged. Oh. water inside the Gumby. You know, I was cutting holes down on the feet, on the legs of the Gumby suit to try to get some of the water out because it was super heavy, hard to maneuver. Um, Dang, yeah, that's, that was my first case. Holy it was rough. Smoke. We couldn't even get, we couldn't even get the other victim in. We had to just drop a beacon and let the small boats out of, out of uh, somewhere out of, out of Maine come and try to find them. Wow. But you know, I mean, that was, I was trained for that. You know, we knew that that was a, a, a possibility. And I remember too, Thor and Scott being really good about, you know, in our professional development training days is that, you know, it's not always going to be fun and it's right. not always going to be a positive outcome. Nine times out of 10 in this, at this station, it's going to be exactly what you just encountered. I also remember one of the things that were coming back um, when there was a case that was like this, man, there was dudes there waiting for you. Not just the next duty, not not just the next guy on duty, but Scott would come, Thor would come, you know. Like it was a good, it was a good group of guys. Like they, 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 you know, especially for us younger guys that were coming up in the trenches, they they helped us. You know, they they made us, they made you do your job, but they were they, they helped you out. It was a yeah. good, you know, they were there waiting for you when the rotors were turning. So it was good. That's that's awesome. Like oh, as far as the, you know, the back end, the shop, you know, yeah, coming yeah. together to help out because that's always hard, you know, just having that that. And you, it was your first case. Gosh, I know. like you get out there, like oh, you know, yeah, I was, I was it was a. <laughs> I think for me too. I mean, you know, like I knew this was a possibility, but that was like the start of the dark era for me. I really went through a dark era uh, in that in my Coast Guard career because it became and I tell people this that ask me about it sometimes. I mean, I just say, well, it was just a job, you know, like it was a it was just a job for me and I couldn't wait to get home. Um, the door, you know, like we'd be looking out the window or, the, you know, we'd be looking out the door. But for me, it was just a job and I, it became dark in the sense that I, I sort of lost touch with the positive aspects of humanity a little bit. Okay. Because it was dark and I, I felt like maybe I had somehow created this barrier between reality and, you know, and, and, and what I did in the helicopter, 
because I didn't, I had a lot of issues. I mean, I had a lot of things that we, that, that I saw that were just heart wrenching at the same time, but dark, you know, and it was like, I didn't, when I went home, I didn't want to deal with the thoughts of that. So I somehow was able to block it out a little bit. Um, and I'm not saying that was the right thing to do. It's just, that's what I did to cope. Uh, and even today, I mean, if I close my eyes and now that I'm talking to you, I can still see that guy's face, you know, like it's a, those are pivotal things that just really lay an imprint in your mind uh, forever. You just gave me chills, bro. It's tough. Yeah. But you know, it's a good thing that we have these times of things with you and that you're bringing up these things because it does give us a chance to reflect and remember and appreciate, you know, what we have now and, and thank and be thankful for those opportunities to grow and sort of develop as a, as a human. Now I don't I mean, now I am, I'm way out of that dark area and I'm super positive. And I mean, you know, I, I work with students and I have a child. And so um, I don't have that dark period. You know, I'm super positive about all things and trying to be helpful and stay composed and do the job, you know? So it's what it is. <laughs> stay composed and finish the job. Ah, that's right. I absolutely love that. So after your very first case, I mean, uh, how long were you in Cape Cod? Four years? Uh, yeah, just yeah, just at four. Four and out, or four and transfer? Four and out, yeah. So if you you're telling me, you, so you're telling me you had a couple gnarly cases there that stand out to you? Yeah, I had like three, three cases that stood out. That and then of course the JFK situation was not really a case. I mean, the J, the you know John F. Kennedy Jr. was a case certainly. But it was way overblown as far as like what we did. We just went out and flew around looking for the dude. It was right. just, but, but the backside of that was such a weird situation with the, the coverage and the press and the, and the pressure of society to find him. You know, like they were all, all eyes were on air station Cape Cod. And, and off the top of my head, uh, which I please fill in the blanks, but he was flying off Nantucket or Martha's Vineyard. Well, I think he was flying to Martha's Vineyard, but okay. I think the plane crashed just off Nantucket, Got like it. in that little in the in the area between the two. Yeah. So geography, um, for those that don't know, you have Cape Cod, Massachusetts, which is Cape Cod kicks out south side of Boston and the Cape does this little hook. Uh, and then you have two islands that are just south. One is Nantucket. The other is Martha's Vineyard. Or if you're from New England, Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> that's right. And JFK yeah, was flying out and got caught in fog and pile drived into the water or is assumption assumption that was a, the biggest yeah i mean from what did, have you ever listened to the have you ever listened to the transcripts i have not no yeah uh, you probably shouldn't but i did okay. <laughs> <laughs> i went back and listened to when the faa released them and it was pretty horrifying but i mean it was clear to me that he got vertigo and just couldn't get himself out of the fog bank and I mean, I've had vertigo flying in a helicopter even before with, you know, pilots in a, in a fog. It's strange. Yeah. And you have to really kind of, it was dark, you know, all lights were off. I mean, we were kind of flying in the dark and it was strange, but I remember looking, trying to kind of trying to look up and see the instruments to try to get back where I was. Cause that was what we trained you to do. And, but I remember it was tough to get, I mean, it was tough to get your mind like snapped out of it. Uh, and I just felt like I was upside down and I wasn't, you know, it was a weird thing. So I could, I could definitely see where just made a bad call to fly in the fog. Yeah. So, and it cost him, you know, it cost him and, and two others, but so yeah, the second case I had was a really strange one. It was a cook 
Um, she had suffered a heart attack. She was on an Indonesian ship. None of them spoke English. We had so we had a, somebody from um, Central in Boston trying to tell the pilots what they were telling. I mean, it was a nightmare. It was pouring down on rain. Wind gusts were out of this world. The mechanic, the flight mech, it was his first case. I'm like trying to help him talk through it. I'm like, you know, listen, you're gonna. I need to go right there. And the pilot's like, y'all think you can do this? Because we're not really sure. It's just going to be touch and go here. I mean, it's going to be get you on the boat, get you off, and we got to get out of here. We, we, you know, we're going to be right on the hairline of where we are for fuel. So we rushed. And I mean, when I tell you, they had to get me on the front. The H-pad was on the front of this container ship. And it was one of those container ships where they had the two big crane bases in the middle. And then they were the ones that were the big folding doors, like where you had these compartments. And then, of the course, the pilot house was in the back. We tried to relay to Boston to tell them to try to bring her up to the front, to the H-pad, so we could just get her and go. Well, of course, that didn't get relayed. And she's all the way back at the pilot house. And the pilots are just pissed. They're like, oh, you know, this isn't going to work. Probably have to leave you there. And I was like. No, <laughs> no, you're not. I, no, 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 no. I will you know, jump in the water and you will. Right. Like, <laughs> I have plans tomorrow. And, um, <laughs> you know, it was that mindset again. It was like, oh, this is just my job, dude. I'm not living here. Like, I have plans. So, anyways, um, speaking of being athletic, you know, like, I, it was those things, you know, you get down. So, let me just tell you this, though. I, I'm not lying to you, and you can go back and pull the records on this if you want, but the helicopter was here. The boat was way out here. They were tilting the helicopter to try to stay in the wind and cut the, you know, and cut the torque. And, I mean, when I'm at the cable and I'm all the way, like, here, because the wind is so bad, I remember looking up thinking, like, oh, my God, where, where are y'all? And I had to look to my left almost straight out. So what, I mean, what was, you're saying right now is the wind was so bad. It was actually pushing you, uh, not plumb, but almost at a like 30 degree angle off the air. Oh yeah. Easily. As I mean, and we were being hoisted out. Yeah. And they wanted, oh, and they were nervous God. about being near the cranes. So we were, we were a distance. Like I remember thinking like to myself, like, Oh my gosh, we're really far. And I mean, I'm not sure how he's going to get the hook back down here. So Anyways, I get down there. I'm literally climbing up over these things. There's ladders about six feet, maybe there's on the end. And I'm literally climbing up, sliding over like Dukes of Hazard, jumping down, climbing up, sliding over because it's pouring down rain. And uh, I, I run all the way almost to the midship. And they finally know it. They kind of see what's happening. So they're sliding her across in this like makeshift little basket thing that they have her in. And they, you know, running over and then we meet sort of in the middle and I'm like, you know, got to get up front, got to get up front to the H pad. And so I'm just, and I'm hearing under my radio, like time's running out, time, time, you know, I'm thinking, dude, I'm working, I'm working. I know, I know, I'm going as fast as I can. Right. Like, do you see me down here? Do you see what I'm doing? I'm running like, <laughs> and so, I mean, we slide her up and um, I remember radioing down, you know, I'm like, all right, go ahead and send me a litter. Let's do this. And I can remember the litter coming down with just the guy, the, the guy had done a perfect job. I mean, he had that thing with chem lights all up over it. I mean, it was like a Christmas tree coming down. Yeah. And there were sandbags. He had done a really good job. I mean, he there were sandbags all up in it too to keep the weight. 
we got it down and just got her up and they were like, we're not going to have enough time. So you're going to have to do an illegal procedure and just clip in with her and come up with her. And clip so the I did or clip onto the basket. Well, so we brought down the litter and oh. I straddled the litter um, because she was in and out. So nice. I, um, it was bad. It was a bad situation. She was in and out of consciousness. Um, she was in rough shape. Her whole side, left side was just, you could, it was drooping. I mean, you know, she had suffered some, some, a pretty bad situation. And I remember trying to like, even, you know, give her some compressions and some sternum rub and just trying to keep her even as we went up and, you know, yeah, it was, it was, it was a, it was a hard, that was a hard situation because I mean, I breathed life into her and brought her back like three times on the way to Boston medical, wow. uh, Boston general. And, you know, we got her there and I'm not sure, you know, obviously I'm not sure how we've got her off. And they, I mean, they came out, it was the middle of the night, still pouring down rain. And I, and I watched her girl away and it was, I mean, it was like, damn, you know, then you kind of just, you know, you sit back in your chair and you're just like, Oh, well, the thing for me though, that was the hardest of all these cases is that you never know. You never know what you know, they would never tell you. Like I called up there the next day and I asked my chief to call. I mean, cause I just wanted to know, like, did she make it? I don't care of her name. I don't care. You know, I just did what I did help and did, did our training work, you know, like, was it effective? And that was never communicated to us, which I always thought was sort of a, a shit thing to do. Yeah, like that's a bummer. You know, they just would never, I don't know what, I mean, you know, the policy was unless you were, unless you were family, you weren't told. And uh, I always thought, well, that's kind of shitty. You know, all you had to do is say, did she make it? Yes or no. And then I would be happy, you know, because then it was like, I did my job and my training paid off and we, we got one saved. So, but yeah, that case, that case was a wicked case. I mean, as far as like the weather conditions, she, she was, she lost her, you know, her control of her bowels. And so the helicopter was in, in pretty rough shape when we got back. Uh, I remember Scott, our, our chief, once again, he was there when we got back. And I remember him helping me, you know, pressure wash the chopper and getting it prepped. And I mean, dude, you know, it was just a good support network there. Wow. What a case. Uh, so yeah. my own curiosity, um, you mentioned it saying, you know, an illegal procedure. So that's an illegal procedure at the time for the U.S. Coast Guard. That was not a trained procedure to hook up to the hoist hook or a litter and ride with the patient and the litter. Now, I can tell you from my training now, I do that all the time. And it, there's, it's no sweat. It's, it's very right. benign and very easy. The pararescue guys do it all the time. Um, I How think for us, it was not an approved, maybe not, maybe not illegal, but not approved and not a priority one, I think, or something like that. Okay. So we'll use that term. So it was not approved at the time. How did that go through with you to make that call? And, and when you got up to the aircraft, how is it perceived by the flight net? Cause I know again, not, um, not the approved method. So that's, it's not trained. So when you get up to the aircraft and all of a sudden the, yeah. the flight net's like, what's up, dude? <laughs> Well, and I think exactly. And I think what the conversation was, if I remember correctly, the pilots were like, look, we're, we're running on fumes. Um, we won't make it back if we, you know, or you won't make it back, you'll stay. And the conditions on the ship were not, I mean, it was a, 
it was a it was a judgment call by everybody involved. I mean, we oh. were the rescue team, right? So we made the call of what we were going to do. That's awesome. Um, the you know the pilot suggested it. The flight mech said he could do it. Um, I said I was going to do it, and because she obviously and and two, I mean the the the, the situation just prescribed it. I mean, the winds were the winds were atrocious. We needed a little bit more weight on that litter so that it wasn't just whipping around. And I mean, there was a potential of losing her in the middle of the ocean with that thing whipping around. So having me on the hook controlling that situation was necessary uh, for the weight, for the, you know, for the balance and then getting her up and then also maintaining. I mean, you know, maintaining her her life. That was the call that we made. And I I remember it distinctly because when we all got back, when we debriefed, you know, when the pilots wrote it all up and we sat there, they all agreed that that was that was the absolute necessary situation to go in. And so we we chalked it up as, you know, making a judgment call 101 on the scene. You know, no one really can tell you what you need to do when you're there. Right. You know, um, you, you mentioned earlier about how you would redo it. That was, that's one case that I think went 100 percent exactly how it needed to go. There was nice. no room for there wasn't any room for negotiations i mean you if you put anybody in that situation and with the same training we had i would assume and imagine that it would go the same way for everyone because that's what you trained us to do is make decisions based on the scene and save a life and i feel like we did those three things that's awesome and i'm all about it i really am i i wish that i had been able to train that more while i was in uh, I love the fact that they're introducing it to the Coast Guard swimmers now and the, or the flight crews now because it's an awesome tool to use and it saves so much time. You take two yeah. hoists and you make it one. And in a case like that, one hoist is a long time. So, mm-hmm. and we do yeah, I mean, we ran out. <laughs> we, we all, yeah. And we ran out that spool. I mean, we were, we were literally, it was just, a, it was just the most amazing case to be on because it was the true, I mean, it was the epitome of, a true rescue everything the conditions were shit the pilots were amazing the flight met was brand new and just ready to roll and then you know and the woman needed to be saved and so i feel like we did everything on that case that we could have and it will always go down as my you know like my the period the top of the pyramid case for me that is badass dude <laughs> it was it was man it was wild awesome that's incredible you and the whole crew Hats off to you guys. Was. I wish, you know, I wish I knew the names of those people. I wish I could go back and remember. I just remember Dave was the flight mech because we called him Dave and he was from California. Um, that's, I mean, you know, I just remember, I just, I just remember certain things. One of the things, you know, you asked me a little bit too, is about what would you change? And I said a lot, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change necessarily things on this case, but I wish I could go back and change my my attitude and my thought process of what that job and what that opportunity was. At the time, I just was young and I felt like I had maybe bigger ambitions than working on pumps every day and, you know, sewing up parachutes, which I'm a little bit ashamed of because looking back now, I wish I would have stayed in for my 20. I mean, two of my four guys that were in my class did stay in and did amazing things and were very successful. 
Um, they're of course out now and retired and, you know, full pension and doing now the next phase of their life. I'm working <laughs> still, um, you know, I'm 47 now and I'm working at a university, which is great. I'm, and, I, and I feel like I'm doing good stuff, but I'm working and I'll probably be working until I'm 60, you know, maybe not at this university, but still I'll, I'll probably still have to work. I mean, and that's not really the, the main issue. I think the, or the main issue is that I wish, and I, I'm hoping that if, a, if there's a younger audience listening to this and that they are um, in the swimmer program and they're part of this um, unique environment, this is what I would say to you. I would say to you, stay as long as you can um, and take as much as you can. I mean, treat every day as an opportunity to be involved in a unique elite program where you are someone um, making a difference because when the minute you leave that program, you're no one, you know, like you, you may have the training in the background and you may have a little bit of this, but the transitionary jobs for you outside of the U S coast guard as an arrest, as a re helicopter rescue swimmer and an aviation survival technician, there is probably a few jobs that are translatable, you know, transferable. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. All I'm saying is you have an opportunity right now to stay in a program that is very supported, very funded, regardless of what everybody, th what everybody thinks. If you need something and you want something, you're going to get it. I mean, uh, in that program. And yeah. so um, it's just, I, I wish I would have, I wish I would have been more career focused and career minded to see the opportunities that that job had for you um, and, and, and allowed you to be a part of, because I, I miss it. I know I missed, I missed the opportunity to stay in and, and make a career out of it. And I, and I also would disagree with anyone who says that, well, you have, you're just staying in because there's really nothing else for you. You're, you're a dumbass and you're not going to find anything except working. I don't agree with that either. I no, think I. that you, I think that we are a trained system that is an integral part of the Coast Guard's um, mission. And I feel like if you want to do things outside of, of that job, you have those opportunities. I mean, there are career development officers. You can go to take classes. You can be, you can go to college at night. You, you can do anything you want, just like anyone else does, like, you know, in their career path. So I wish that I would have seen it more as a career um, because the Coast Guard certainly did a, a great job of treating it like a career. I just wasn't young enough. I mean, I wasn't old enough and I wasn't wise enough to see it that way. And I should have. I wish I would have. Um, that's my only for those youngers out for you, for you youngsters out there. All right. Listen to your elders. <laughs> I'm so, not old. Um, I don't know why you're talking about it. I'm, I'm well, you know, I just, I'm not old. <laughs> well, anyways, it was a good thing, you know, and um, the opportunity to travel and them moving you and doing some great things and being a part of an elite team. I mean, that's just really you don't get that anywhere else, you know, so it was I wish you could stay in. What great advice, man. That's everybody that's listening. Take that advice for sure. All you, especially you younger guys. Good Lord. It's freaking spot on. It's a good job. You mean it's a good job to be in, right? Like you, yeah. you get to work out, you get to stay fit, you get to stay healthy. You are, you're funded. You get, you know, the pay is decent for what, you know, um, and then you get to have this investment in a, a retirement system. That's really great. And then you get to be, there's tons of options, you know, like you can go warrant, you can do, uh, I mean, you could get into administration. It's just about seeing the opportunities. And I wish, 
I just wish that maybe was more part of the of the focus was you know career mindedness, career development, instead of just oh yeah, you're going to be fixing these pumps and sewing these parachutes and then jumping out of a helicopter. Hoorah! It's more like you get to do those things, and these are some opportunities that you know that you could be involved in. So yeah. I do remember there was a woman; she was an officer from Boston, and she used to come down, you know, and talk to us about. Um, college and you know university because we had certain partnerships with like Bridgewater State University and UMass Amherst and I mean there were other places and I remember Joe Rogers he was a, a he was a class right below me but for some reason we both went we were like oh man you know let's go to this thing and I think the only reason we went don't tell anybody but I think she was super hot um and then we were like <laughs> oh let's go <laughs> Man, uh, I was like, oh, we should go. I mean, I'm not saying that's all the reason we went. I'm just saying, like, I remember seeing her walk into the room and we're like, oh, we'll stay for this meeting. Um, and it was like, you know, career. I was like, you know, you have your GI Bill and you have this and you can do this, 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 and this. And uh, it struck a chord with Joe because he ended up getting out and going to school at UMass Amherst in his wildlife biology degree. And I believe he's still to this day a wildlife biologist for the state department of Massachusetts, you know? So, I mean, um, and he's done some, he's done some things, you know, in his field that have, that were transferable. Um, I think he's done part of the, you know, rescue and recovery stuff, you know, swift water stuff up in in North Massachusetts, but yeah. So uh, yeah, I just, I'm wishing for you younger guys that you take advantage of some of those opportunities and, you know, and build your, build your, uh, your resume because when you do your 20 and then you get out that's not the end for some of you that should just be the yeah. beginning of the next phase you know phase two yeah yeah totally like i i've yeah. enjoyed my phase two I, I so i did not i only did 12 years in the coast guard and, and i got out uh but man i i've had an amazing back half like i love where i started i i love the the coast guard the swimmer program everything about that and i Absolutely love where I'm at too. Like I've had yeah. such a good time. So, but dang, man. So what else you got? What other stories have you got from Cape Cod that stand out to you? Yeah. You know, the JFK junior, that's kind of an interesting case. And again, it was a strange case. And um, I had, I had some former students that got into building documentaries and they um, did a documentary a couple of years ago because it was the 20 year anniversary of JFK junior. Okay. And um, they produced it. It's called it's called um, The Rescuer. It's really great. Um, it's a short, just a mini documentary. Um, they, I think they even got it up on Netflix now. But I mean, they just interviewed me and talked about the case. And, and again, you know, that case was strange. It wasn't really a case case because we didn't really even find anything. But and for some of you, that, you know, that are listening that are not aware of the JFK Jr. case, uh, JFK Jr. Uh, was a pivotal part of society. In Massachusetts, you know, in the in the Northeast, I mean, he was considered. I mean, the whole Kennedy compound and in Hyannisport, and you know, I mean, look, look, JFK was, if if anything, he was the Michael Jackson of the East Coast. I mean, he was, in a sense, that he was a celebrity. Everyone knew him. Um, He was admired. I mean, there was talk of him going into politics and becoming the next president. I mean, there was just he, he. I, you know, he was just sort of like whatever the royal, the princess or the prince and princesses like in England kind of stuff. You know, he was just the guy. And so, but it was strange too for me because I didn't really, 
I mean, I'm from Idaho, like I'm from the Northwest. Like we don't give it really a shit about that kind of stuff, but in the Northeast, you know, people gave a shit. Like it was, there was some type of strange allegiance to all of that, especially the Kennedy family because of the politics in Massachusetts and the celebrity in New York. And so, I mean, I remember it was like, oh, JFK was spotted in Hyannisport kayaking and windsurfing or whatever today. And I'm thinking to myself, that's news. Come on, man. Um, but it was a big deal for them, you know, and for that culture. And so, um, yeah, I mean, you know, when he died, it was, it was horrifying for the Northeast. I mean, I guess for America, all I mean, it was, you know, it was sad, but the Northeast really took it sad. I mean, there were people that were just devastated. And, you know, obviously my situation was that I was the, the rescue swimmer on duty. But here's how this all rolled down. We um, were awakened. We were, we were awoken at like four in the morning. And you know how this goes, right? Like you hear some ruffling in the hallway. And then you're like, oh, shit, here we go. And so, of course, it's a knock, 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 you know, on your door. And it's like, you know, hey, Officer Davis, you're wanted down at Flight Ops or whatever. And so, you know, the routine, you get your shit on and you start kind of, you know, making your way down and kind of hustling and everything. And so I remember this time, though, it was, uh, hey, Officer Davis, you're wanted in the ready room. You're wanted in, you're needed in the ready room instead of, you know. And so as I'm walking down from our dorms, the, the helicopter's just sitting there with the blinking lights on, like no one's out there. The mule's not out there with the, with the generator. I mean, nothing's really going. And I'm yeah. like, uh, it's fucking four in the morning. Like, you know, and you just got me up. So why are we not rolling? You know, like what's yeah. going on here? What, I mean, what could possibly happen that I need to get up at four in the morning? <laughs> you know? Uh, so of course I get down into this little ready room. It's in the hangar, you know, that's in the corner. Um, there's a lot of people in there, like a lot of people, people with like stars on and like people in blue uniforms that I don't even know who those people are. And, uh, you know, they're Air Force people. I'm like, what the fuck are, what are you people doing here? And you're waking uh, up, you got pillow face. Yeah. Like, oh, <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. I'm in my, <laughs> I'm in my shit. Like I'm my, my, you know, my, my dry suits half tied up in my way. I mean, I'm ready to go. Like I'm, you know, like what's going on? What are we doing? And I mean, you know, I'm pretty alpha male, like I'm right, you know, I'm come kind of walking in there and I'm like, all right, what do we do? What's going on? You know, I'm ready. And they're like, yeah, we're going to just hang tight for a minute. We're going to just hold one. And I'm like, and the pilots are over there and they know kind of like, and uh, the flight manic, you know, or mechanic is kind of sitting beside me and we're all just kind of squished in this room and we're watching this TV weather and, you know, we're some guys on the phone and he's just sitting there on the phone, like listening. And I'm like, you know, what's going on? They're like, I don't know. Uh, we're just being told to wait. Dude, two hours. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, it's not like 10 minutes. Like, we're like, I'm, we're in there. I'm like. Like snoozing. <laughs> yeah, dude. Like, just, just wake me up when you guys are ready. <laughs> pretty much. I mean, you know, they, they were like, well, so, I mean, they said we had a situation. We had a high, there was a high profile case that was being can't remember the exact term, but like that way it was being um, assessed or evaluated. Okay. And so they would launch us the minute that they, that we got um, approval to go. So uh, we just all thought it was just super strange. Like, this is just weird. We've never, like, this is something I've never been, you know, I've been there like three years now, two and a half years. And so 
every time that I'd ever come down from the barracks, the helicopter was spinning. I'm literally just jumping on and we're lifting off. I mean, that's how this all went down. So to just sit here and wait just was, it was annoying if anything. Yeah. Right. And I, and we didn't, they didn't give us any details, which I mean, I understand. Right. So, but what we were told was at the time it was a high profile case. It was being evaluated for, you know, whatever. And it was foggy. I do remember it being super foggy that morning. Um, well, yeah, you know, early morning, um, which isn't, but that's not atypical either. I mean, we've lifted it off in, you know, zero, <laughs> we've lifted zero. off in a lot thicker fog and shit weather than that. I mean, it's been snowing on the blades and we're out there shaking blades up with snow to get ready. So, I mean, that wasn't like a big deal, but um, so, you know, yeah, we, we just sat there and then of course it was like, and then it was like, I don't know, six 30 or something. I mean, it was just daybreak and they're like, it was summer, you know, and they're like, all right, we're going, we're going, let's go. So we all kind of run out together and, and we, we get the 60 going and, it, and it's like, um, okay, well, what is it? What is it? Well, it's a down plane. Okay. Well, who is it? You said it's high profile. We don't have that information. Okay. Wow. Well, they were just super hot. Oh, and I get this. So we get on, the, we get on the helicopter and an air force guy gets on with us. And he's like, I'm like, you know, okay. So he's sort of sitting at the jump seat right here and I'm man the radios and just, just doing what we do. And I mean, you know, it was door open, low hovers circling around certain areas because there was a, um, an oil slick that they thought maybe that's where it was. Um, and I mean, it was like, I don't know, we'd flown for maybe an hour, an hour and a half. And, you know, and I, you know, it's just routine, you know, you're just like looking out the window. It's like, uh, we're just looking for shit, you know, like, oh, there's maybe some, I don't know. And then the flight bank's looking for shit and the air force guys out, he's tag lined up he's looking for shit. We're just looking, but nobody's really telling us like what we're looking for other than small pieces of plane. And then for some reason I'm on the radio doing my, you know, doing our routine check-ins and I happen to just kind of like get a flicker of something in my eye and I look up and like, there is a hornet's nest of helicopters above us. Like I'm talking hornet's nest. And, and I, I'm like, Hey pilots, there's like a bunch of helicopters. There's a bunch of activity above us. And of course, then they're looking up and it's all news helicopters. Wow. And so we, we start flipping channels and the, and, the, and the pilots start flipping channels. JFK Jr.'s plane goes down. It gets somehow released. We don't even know, dude. We didn't even know who we were looking for until we're flipping channels and then the news is reporting it. So the news got wind of it before we did. And then, then it was like, I don't know. I can remember this feeling all of a sudden, like, just like, you know how your skin stands up and you're just like, what? That, I mean, that was the feeling we all had because then we turned it on. I mean, we had door open. We were like, oh my God, if we can, if we, it's JFK Jr. If we find this guy, Oh my God, we're going to go to every Thanksgiving dinner. We're going to be, you know, we're, we're, going, to, we're going to be like, we're going to, I, mean, I just remember talking to the flight back, like, dude, if we find this guy, like, we're going to be on the news, bro. It's, it's going to be headline news. We're going to be invited to like royalty shit, you know, like dinners and like dressed up in our, in our whites. Oh, dude, that's going to be sick. Let's hurry up and find this guy, you know? So that was the tone. It totally twisted from like, <laughs> Routine, just monotonous bullshit to like, oh man, you know, which is sad, right? Like that's the it mentality, is, but it is a little sad. Mentality. It is a little sad. It, it's kind but of funny the, at the same time, you know, like, cause you're right. It is. You get caught but up. The mentality too was that, you know, 
the mentality of it was too, that we wanted to find a guy live. That's mm-hmm. what the mentality really truly was. It was that for me, I mean, I was, it was all of those things set aside and, and the funny jokes that we, you know, think we were saying, we did step it up a notch. And that's the other sad part too, is that for all of us, this becomes a routine thing where sometimes the effort put into it is always, you know, a positive effort in the sense that you want to find what you want to find. But when it becomes high profile and there's like this, you know, better, well, okay. I would put it this way when it's high profile and there's a better chance to find someone alive, then the, 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 the energy escalates a little bit for us. For me, it did. I mean, you know, cause most of the time, look, when we're being called out, it's a shit storm out there. It's freezing cold and we're just going to try to find a body. Yeah. But in this case with JFK, I mean, the plan had just gone down. And um, so, you know, um, we thought we'd definitely find some floating debris. And, you know, there he would be on top of it. And we'd get down there and I'd be like, sir, it's going to be all right. We got you. You know, like the Top Gun scene. Yeah, know? yeah, but, yeah. Um, yeah, that didn't happen. We searched for days. For so days. what's interesting to me with that whole thing, what you just said is, is not – you know, I, I with you, I'm with you. I, I kind of laugh at the the whole jokes. Oh, you know, you're gonna be invited to Thanksgiving and be on the Christmas card yeah. list. You know, like that that is something that we all do in the aircraft. And for everybody that thinks that we don't, yeah, well, the cats out of the bag. We do. We make jokes and, and stuff, but it's to keep our mentality uh, and emotions in check. At the same time, dispatch and the people that should have fed you guys the information that would have been helpful for all of you guys just to get started. Because that would have elevated the profile right from the get-go versus waiting until you've been out there for searching for one or two hours. And then it's like, oh, oh, now we know what we're looking for. Come on, man. And we never knew, you know, we never really understood why that wasn't released to us because it wasn't like we were going to get on the radio and start blasting it out. It was just that it would have been helpful to know. I mean, and at the time, I mean, looking back at the case and how that policy and the protocol work, obviously, it's a presidential, uh, you know, protected person. They, the Air Force had been looking for him all morning. That's why they were there. They were part of this case early. They had, um, because when it comes down to the the, part, the protocol is, is that the Air Force and the Army, I mean, you know, those types of people are the first uh, on scene for right. this particular protocol. So uh, they had been looking for him for a while. Once it once once they was daylight or once they couldn't locate what they needed, then they called us as sort of backup, which was strange to us. But that's how it was. That's just how the policy works, you know. And um, the, and the Air Force was again. The Air Force was in charge of the rescue operation. They were the ones that, you know, were communication were communicating with ops and all that. So it was just like again. I told you. I mean, from the minute I was woken up until the minute I got off the helicopter whole case was just strange um we did flew we did fly the entire uh four hours i mean we we exhausted our fuel and then we went back and of course there was a you know the ready helicopter was basically taken off at the same time we were landing and then you know and then of course it was released you know by eight o'clock well and it was released earlier because when we came back i don't know if you've ever been to cape cod station but We so you know we share with the F-15s and everything, and there's that long drive all the way down the side, right by the airstrip. I shit you not, bro. It was 
it was news truck after news truck all the way from that first gate or from the little corner all the way to our little gate. They had to, in fact, they had to have some extra security out there by the um, little plane set up at, wow. for the coast. Yeah. And they, I mean, when I, and I say news truck, this was back in the night. Well, yeah, nineties, right? 99. The news truck with the big satellite, you know, sitting yeah. out, it was like old style news truck. And then we flew over and kind of buzzed because, because the, the pilots were like, what the hell? So we kind of, you know, came in and buzzed over. And then I remember one of the pilots saying like something like, oh, boys, it's going to be a shit show when we land. So just, you know, listen, you know, just hang out or do what you need to do. But I'm being told that when we land, we're going to be taken in and having a conversation. with. So just, you know, be patient and everything. And it certainly was, you know, like there was PR people there. I mean, they were, you know, we were told what we could say, what we couldn't say. The pilots, you know, the pilots did most of the talking. Um, It was, but you know, again, one, it was just an experience of seeing what high profile, because, you know, like when I turned over that dead body and did the best I could to bring back a a human being, or I dropped off somebody at Boston Medical, there was never a PR group. (laughs) There was never like the whole, you know, horse and pony show when we get back from those things, but it definitely showed what high profile uh you know equated and so yeah i know it was a crazy couple 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 days there and then and then it even continued because then they brought the crash so they located the crash it was devastating i mean i'm talking so they brought they reconstructed the crash site in our hangar c which is way in the corner um and they of course they built this big wall around it and you can google pictures they had this big thing um and uh you know like me and joe we kind of the they had military guards out there and um you know they were cool and but we were like man can we just peek in we just want to see you know like and they was like yeah just peek in and he like patted you down making sure you didn't have anything on you (laughs) so Uh, no cameras i was like all right oh yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, and of course, this was 99. I don't even know. Did we have cell phones? Maybe we did, but they were like the old, you know, like, yeah. hello. Um, and Big so, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, but we did. We got to peek around the corner and, and see. And I mean, I think for me, that was the first time that I'd ever seen wreckage that was super devastating. I mean, I flew on Egypt Air uh, 990, but that was just a, that was a nightmare too, but we didn't really, you know, get super involved in that. We just flew on it. And then, and we saw pieces and parts, but with, with JFK, um, you know, everything was all laid out. And I mean, I, people have asked me what it looked like. And I, what I tell them is, is like, take a Pepsi can and throw it in a lawnmower. Oh, wow. And then, Yeah. I mean, I don't, there was nothing. I mean, the fuselage was just shredded. And the only thing I remember seeing that had like any substance was like the engine uh, and the blades were just peeled back uh, and almost into a circle. So, I mean, the initial report was that, you know, he went down. And then, of course, I've sort of followed the case and, and looked at things over the years because it just kind of comes up. But, I mean, they're, they're estimating that anywhere between three and 600 miles an hour is what he hit the water at um, just smoke. based on like uh, based on whatever they're doing the calculations of how high he was and then going straight down with the speed that he was going at the time and then you know it's just just you can then you can listen to the 
you can listen to the reflight recordings and they're pretty horrifying. So I wouldn't suggest you do it, but yeah, it just sounded like it was a, a bad situation all around. And when that plane hit, it just like went through the water and just shredded. It just shredded itself. And the only thing positive, right? I guess the only thing positive is that it was a quick, a quick ending. Yeah. So there wasn't any, I don't believe there would have been any suffering whatsoever. So. Wow. But yeah. So the JFK case, you know, just a strange situation. Then a lot of fanfare and, and shows and, you know, people getting on boats and going out searching. And of course, um, uh, Ted Kennedy said, Senator Ted Kennedy was there. uh, uh, And he came to the hangar uh, and, you know, shook hands and said, thanks to all the rescuers at the boat stations. And, um, at Woods Hole and Cape, and Cape, it was good. I mean, you know, we we were thanked, and I think we, I think we did our the best we could with what we had, you know, going out. But that's that's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. Wow. I, you know, I, I like, I think I told you one a, a friend of mine, one of my pilots from one of my cases, uh, Kendall. You know, she told me a little bit about it, but not nearly in depth like this. So, thank you for sharing. Yeah, you know, and it would be cool if we could ever connect with her sometime because I would like, I would love to hear her perspective um, just to see, you know, like how our, how our, our memories match up. Cause I think sometimes it's interesting. She's probably been on a ton more cases since. So did she make a, obviously she made uh, it a career? Yes. Uh, if off the top of my head, she's now retired or getting ready to retire, one or the other. Like, sure. So I, I'm not totally sure. I, I keep in touch, but not, not like on a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, too, there was like, I mean, we had a helicopter after helicopter after helicopter launch out that day. You know, I think, yeah. I, mean, I can't remember how many helicopters we went out, but um, wow. they, you know, they put on full, it was all hands on deck, full force, full force showing for sure that day. I just happened to be the one that got at four o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> Davis, Davis, let's yeah. go. Get your stuff. <laughs> yeah. So. Dang, man. So, yeah, I mean, you know, those are the cases and that's, those are the ones that certainly stand out the most. I mean, we had some other little things up and down and, and doing stuff, but uh, yeah, you know, we had a good group of guys at Air Station Cape Cod and it was just, it was always, fun to come in to work you know you just never really knew i mean that's one of the things that was so interesting about that job was that it was something different every day yeah. you know it was just never it was never uh it was never stale it was always an adventure yeah. <laughs> no matter what yeah. you did every day and, and you and cape cod was interesting too and i i was never stationed there myself but with all the stories i've heard out of cape cod you you could be going up in inland stuff you can be doing you know, Arctic stuff. I, I know guys that went up to uh, Canada, you know, yeah. down into New York. It's like, holy smoke. You guys had a, a an interesting area of responsibility. Let's say that. Yeah. You know, from all the way from New Jersey, all the way to the tip of Maine and then yeah. New Brunswick. I mean, I remember we did, there was a sailboat that overturned and we had to go to a, we had to go to a oil rig and get fuel and then continue on. I mean, that wasn't, that was a huge case. Um, were you on that one as well, or just a shop? Just shop. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. those are the ones you hear about. Those are the ones you talk about when you come back. You're like, dude, you are not going to believe this. And then you end up debriefing with the whole shop, and everybody learns something. It's it's cool. Yeah, you know, it was crazy. Um, 
Fred Fine. I don't know if you know Fred, but oh, yeah. he um, love Fred. You know, he him was, and his freaking was, laugh. <laughs> yeah, Fred. You know, Fred was great because Fred brought. He was the group dynamic spearhead. You know, like he he led the party wherever we went and whatever we did. The dude was the most positive energy I think I've ever been around. Uh, Ron, uh, I think his name was Ron Engelman or Ron Engel something. Uh, it was the Fred and Ron show. I mean, Ron, Ron was super strong, um, very quiet, silent leader, you know, like he led us in the physical fitness. It was just, everybody had their role, right. And everybody did a great job. Fred, I remember, you know, Fred and I were always competitive in the pool, trying to swim fast. And I don't, I don't remember ever beating Fred. And I always thought to myself, like, God damn, how can this short little bastard just be so fast, dude? I just don't understand it. And and he doesn't do anything else. I mean, he might jog a little bit to the beer store, but he's not like jogging for, you know, it was like, how can he just be so strong and so fast? You know, but he was, he was super great. Um, and you know, um, Scott was great as our chief, you know, he ran every day and, and he was just a calm sort of level platform, you know, like, we just had a really good, it was just strange. I, I look around today and I don't remember. I mean, obviously I know it's military, it's militaristic leadership, but, and there's some good things that come out of that, you know, like knowing your role and, yep. and having explicit detailed sort of job description and being very organized with how everything's going to run, but also then having the, having the network of support, like being in a group of people that understand the demands and the risks and the challenges and, if they need to, and if they can, they'll help or they'll stand the duty for you or they'll come out and meet you or, you know, they'll, you can't figure this thing out. They'll come out and lend their knowledge. I feel sometimes I miss that in the real world yeah. because I don't think sometimes that is the way it is in a lot of organizations. But for us in Air Station Cape Cod, that was the way it was. You know, they were, they were very positive and they may not, you know, it may not have been the most appropriate sometimes conversations, but the conversations in that, in that office were just funny, you know, and just, just wild. But that, like you said too, that was a way for you to get out of the dark, you know, yeah. and come out of that and snap back out of the shit that you just saw. And, you know, I, the, the situation with the lady, I mean, you know, when I said that she lost her, she lost her ability to, to hold her bowels. She lost that on the way up with me. Oh. So, I mean, I had, I had stuff on me. Um, and it was, but you know, like what kept ringing in my head was what Thor Wentz told me is just hold your composure and do your job, which I did. I just kept trying to pump on her. I kept trying to breathe on her. We, we safely got her inside the, the helo so that we could get to Boston as fast as possible. And we did the whole thing all the way home. Um, so yeah, you know, but when I got back, it was just like, all right. I mean, I remember somebody was telling jokes like, Oh man, you got shit on. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was like, yeah, yeah dude. I, you know, come on, man. But you know, they, I remember them just sitting there. just like, I mean, I was just exhausted, you know? And I remember, I don't, I'm not sure who it was. It may have been Fred. But there's a hose and and, uh, and they're just sitting there spraying me, and just you know. Oh, look at all that shit! 
<laughs> I mean, but at the time, like, but that's what you do, right? That's yeah. that was what the role was of the crew when you got back was to bring you back to some type of normalcy so that you could then function. Otherwise, if it was just dark, 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 man, the dark would take you. Oh, and yeah. I and I saw yeah. that, you know, I saw that with some of the guys that um there was a few guys that just couldn't get out of the dark. Um, I don't know if you never met Brian Lobenstein. Oh yeah, love Lava. Yeah. Lava has actually so been Brian, on here. He was uh whatever episode he was, but he he was one of my first five episodes. Love yeah, Lava. I mean Brian was Brian was definitely I mean Brian was a shit show, but Brian also had the ability to bring out some really unique things in the shop. You know, like he was uh he'd been around, you know, everybody knew Brian and he was funny and he sort of and then of course you couldn't understand hardly a word he said because he was just he's from his, South Boston. <laughs> oh yeah, that and you know, then it matched him up with like Louisiana because he'd been down there for a little bit. It was like bro, what? Say it again. Speak, you know, slowly. I can't. <laughs> but yeah, we just had a, you know, and then we had Troy, uh, Troy from um, I can't think of his last name right now, but he it, came out of Alaska. Do it, huh? Troy, Troy, yes. Jewett? Yes. Yeah. And he was great, you know, like he uh, he and I both went to advanced school together and that was pretty cool. Uh, you know, and it just again, it, so not advanced school was was. <laughs> man, that, that was crazy, you know, like uh -huh. that was the early years of that getting started, I think. And I mean, it was like such an honor to go and be selected from your, your station to go. I, I remember Scott coming to me and saying, you know, Davis, you are eligible for um, advanced school. Do you want to go? And I was like, fucking kidding me? Yeah. When? Today? Let's go. You know, like I, I just remember thinking like, holy God, yeah, I want to go. Like I've been wanting to go really bad since I heard about it. So yeah, that was like probably one of the best weeks of my life as far as professionally, because, you know, the things you got to do and see and, and then the camaraderie out there was so just, you know, over the top. Everybody was super excited to be there. Yeah. Everybody was just really, you know, you kind of, you left your shop to come to like this better shop. <laughs> I'm almost it's a, like it's a, a rescue swimmer playground is what it is. Dude, yeah, it is. It's, and it you was get to such... play in big waves on cliffs, in caves, swim through the surf. It's a, it's the, oh, I loved it. And yeah, then they drop really you like was. five miles offshore and say, see ya, see you in like an hour. Yeah. <laughs> I just remember thinking like, wow this is like, I want to move to North Bend. Like, I mean, that's what, I mean, I, that was my next sort of, you know, like I really, that was leaving Cape Cod was like, if I did, you know, that would where I, that would be where I want to go. And so, yeah, I just remember that was an awesome experience. I learned a lot. Um, I think the cave extraction stuff was really relevant and super interesting and man, all of it, you know, it just, all of those things have really prepared me to be a really, I mean, everything in my background, and I'm kind of sort of taking a transition here, but there, this job that I do now, taking college students out on these pretty extreme, you know, we do rock climbing outdoors. We, we, you know, we're backpacking for 18, 20 some miles, which isn't a lot, but it is for some. And there's just all these things, right. That you deal with group dynamic education, um, risk assessment, risk evaluation, risk management, um, and then the EMT skills, I mean, all those things, wilderness EMT now is what, you know, is my sort of field. So the, I, you know, people have asked me, 
man, what an awesome job you have. And I'm like, yeah, it's really cool. You know, I get to do some really cool things, but I don't think anybody understands like the preparation for the last 20 some years that I've gone to get to this position and be a, you know, a university expedition leader. I mean, you know, we're doing things like Knowles and we're doing things like a wilderness education association, but I'm also sort of infusing all those things and all those practices that I got from the coast guard, which is, you know, composure and, and skill set. It's just, it's just amazing opportunity. But with that, you know, with this opportunity comes a huge responsibility to get people out and get people involved and assess their risk. And, and, and I don't have, I don't have students that are like all the same. I've got students from A to Z literally, yeah. you know, and is dealing with their abilities and skills. And so it's really cool to take what I've learned and apply it here. This job. You have every walks of life coming to you. That's awesome. Yeah, for sure. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Man, what you're doing is amazing. Uh, the, all the kids and, and all this walks of life that you're taking through. Um, I, I'll tell you what, man, all the advice and, and stuff that you live now, I, the floor is open to you. What it, What would you tell other people? Yeah, you know, and I, we were saying earlier, it's uh, I think just, you know, having the opportunity to go and be a part of this elite group definitely set the ground for, you know, opportunities. Uh, and I think I've tried to do, I've tried to seize every opportunity that I, you know, I possibly could uh, and take those transferable skills out and, 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 you know, sort of keep going with, you know, and building on them. But for the younger people, and I mentioned this earlier about just taking advantage of the career opportunities that you have in the Coast Guard, because they are, they are really, uh, they are plentiful if you, you know, if you seek them out. And the thing too, that, I feel like is that they're not going to seek them out for you. I mean, you've got to take the personal responsibility to, to know what you want to do and seek them out. And I think the only problem with that is that a lot of our guys are young, you know, we're talking 19, 20, 21, 22 years old. Um, they just put themselves through this crazy chaotic period of being at the school and learning. Um, and so, you know, you're getting to your base and then you're getting, you know, you're getting qualified and all this stuff, but, so I think sometimes, you know, you just get in this rush of just doing the job, doing the job, and you don't you have these blinders on. Um, uh, or some people get married and have kids, and so, you know, they are a little bit more career gold, career-oriented, and so on and so forth. But for the younger guys that are single that haven't made those commitments outside of the job, you know, it's just I'm hoping that they can take what they're getting and just – and I, I tell my students this too, is like start filling that tool belt, you know, like having a tool belt with so many things, but that you organize it and you sort of categorize it for some end goal, you know, like, and I hate to always have people looking at these end goals, but for me, if you don't have sort of in some kind of an end goal, then I think you're just sort of, you know, you're just swimming. Right. Uh, and you're never really swimming to somewhere or swimming for something. And, you know, you're just sort of keeping your head above water. But it's difficult. I mean, and I'm and I certainly was one of those people that just got caught up with thinking there was something better and and and, and maybe even thinking that I was better than, you know, than pumps and, and parachutes. But um, I, I wasn't, you know, and I it, it was a hard it was a hard transition for me out of the Coast Guard. I knew I wanted to be in education because I just felt like that was somewhere where I wanted to go. Um, I did. I did leave. Um, and I did open up, so I opened up a canoe and kayak business in Cape Cod, right in Onset, which is right across the bridge. Uh, and it was successful. I mean, we did, uh, we did a really good 
business and it was fun. But then the off season, I started going back to school and I started going back to Bridgewater State College at the time. It was a college. And I met up with some really cool guys. And I met this one dude who was an outdoor recreation professor. And he was, he kind of struck up with me like, oh man, you have that kayak shop down in Onset, you know, like we should work together and do some trips or do some organized teaching. Um, and I was like, you're, you're a professor that teaches kayaking. Like, <laughs> it doesn't, that's a job. And I mean, you know, he was like, well, I don't just teach kayaking, but I mean, he was like super cool, you know, like, um, and yeah, I mean, he kind of took me under his wing and was like, show me all the ropes of what academics looks like and how you, and how you bring in these transferable skills, you know, like to academics and be able to teach, you know, and at the time recreation, I don't think outdoor recreation was like hugely popular like it is now. I mean, it was sort of on the cusp of being, I mean, kayaks were around, but not a ton of people do it. The only kayak center that we really knew about that had sea kayaking and sort of the whitewater kayaking was the Charles River Canoe and Kayak Center up in Boston, right on the Charles River. Yeah. And you know, it was difficult to get a kayak because people, they didn't have a ton. And, and when you rented them, it, you only could rent them right there on the Charles River. Yeah. Um, I mean, we wanted to, we wanted to take a kayak and come down to Cape Cod and go into like all the nooks and crannies of the Cape. And so, you know, that just kind of, again, exposure and, you know, getting in this whole world of kayaking was crazy. We started doing trips and I met up with some other people. Um, and obviously I wasn't scared of the water. So, I mean, I could learn to do rolls and I, I started doing that proficiently. And then I started going on whitewater kayak trips up in New England, in Maine and Vermont. And then I got into rafting and then we got into whipwater rescuing. And I mean, you know, I just kind of, that whole, that whole side of. And of we're work. back and into was, rescuing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, but because here's the thing, like what, you know, swiftwater rescues, every sheriff department, every county rescue, every police department, in those areas, if you were near water, they all needed training and they yep. all paid top dollar to have a consultant group come in and teach them about the stuff, you know? And so, I mean, it was just lights, 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 ding, ding, ding. Like, oh, wow, this is a plausible, transferable opportunity. Um, and so, yeah, I got into that, you know, and I started doing it. And then I moved back to Idaho and I started teaching and coaching. <laughs> I coached girls basketball. Nice. Uh, which, was, which was a nightmare. But, um, <laughs> So uh, girls, just, the, just to tell you, uh, so I've coached girls basketball as well. All of my daughters were on my team and, I, and like as they were growing up. So I, I understand exactly what you're talking about, even though they were little just, at the time. <laughs> oh, man. And I taught and I taught and coached at an A1 school, which was top tier, a you know, bigger school in Post Falls, Idaho. Awesome. And so <laughs> it was those girls. I mean, all of them. And I was only the assistant coach. The other I mean, the head coach was a math teacher. And I mean, you know, it was just, he was super great coach, but all these girls had D1, D2 scholarship offers. I mean, they were just very aggressive and didn't want to listen because they'd already knew what they were, you know, uh, they, they won, but they won in a way that was just like, I'm not passing to her. She's already got enough points. You know, I was like, <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> I was like okay. yeah, it was a really crazy. I only did it for a couple of years and I was like, ah, oh, there's gotta be something better. And there wasn't, but okay, it was I fun. didn't have to deal with that. <laughs> yeah, no, it was crazy. So um, then I started, you know, I taught and coached and then I went, I uh, dropped back down to elementary because the district needed some positive elementary. And that was probably the most <laughs> amazing opportunity and the amazing, the most amazing experience. I, I taught in the magnet school. Um, I taught at several schools, but this magnet school, it was a kind of an inner city in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, great school, super positive environment. 
again, brought some of those transferable skills in. Um, we, you know, we tried to do some really unique things with kids and talk about muscle development and, and skill set. And then the Ironman came to town. Uh, the Ironman nice. came to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and I went down and volunteered one year in my kayak. And I was just, I, I was just awestruck at the athleticness of these people. And I ended up staying all the way to midnight and watching the last person cross that finish line and just the excitement. And then I also saw my own kids down there, like from my school yeah. and they, you know, not till midnight, but they were down there like high five in and they were into it, you know, and like they paint their faces. And I mean, this Ironman situation that came to Coeur d'Alene was just an invigorating experience that, and I knew right then is that I, this was something that I wanted to be involved in. You know, and so literally the next day I went and signed up. Um, I was not really in the greatest of shape. You know, I wasn't rescue swimmer shape, but I was, you know, still working out and doing things because, uh, you know, that was what was ingrained into us. But I wasn't, you know, I was not like I should have been. Um, but that changed me. That was, again, this sort of like, you know, being part of something bigger. And just like, you know, I, I was I guess I was sort of searching for that to be what I had left in the Coast Guard, I really, I missed that of being a part of something that was bigger and being a group of people that were supportive. I mean, my teachers were supportive, but we aren't, you know, we were all in different tracks. It's like, you know, your wife knows you yeah. teach, you got your students and you're part of something positive, but you're sort of interdisciplinary, you know, like you, everybody's got their own piece and section. But this, this part of this Ironman and this triathlon group was that, you know, again, you were training for an end goal, which was to finish down that finish line. So, dude, the next day I signed up, the next day I bought a bike. I mean, I maxed out my credit card, like just buying everything I needed to be, because I had this person, she was telling me, oh, yeah, you need this, you need this, you need this. And there it was, 365 days of waking up early, running, biking, swimming at lunch. Um, I mean, I hurt every day. And I, but I mean, I was single at the time I'd gone through a divorce. And so I was, uh, you know, a man on a just, mission. Yeah, dude, just super committed and got into it. I mean, I did, I finished in a really good time that next year, um, signed up for the next one, started doing local triathlons. And then I just became a part of my life and it was super, I traveled, um, places and did triathlons and Ironmans and, um, yeah, that was great, you know, and then I met my my wife that I'm with now, and we both got into it, and we did, like, Miami and Dallas, uh, Texas, Austin, Texas, and we, that was, you know, then that was, became something that we did together and trained and did, and, uh, you know, again, transferable skills, you know, like, I was a, I was a machine in the water. I hardly even, I hardly even had to worry about practicing swimming, you know, like, I didn't focus on swimming. I just focused on running and biking because swimming became so natural and it was exactly the kind of swimming that we did in the coast guard. Yeah. It was like, you know, battleship swimming. It wasn't <laughs> swimming. It was like just getting over top of people, you know, and like, you know, <laughs> it was like, just beat the shit out of somebody to get around the buoy to make your way back. And so, um, you know, yeah, I just got into it. Of course, now that I've got a daughter and we've kind of left that scene, but you know, uh, we swim and we have boat and, you know, we do all this stuff. So we, you know, it's just, you know, getting her, but we, I, I run every morning still. And I've got my six-year-old. She's been out since she's been five. Um, most mornings or most afternoons with me. 
uh, either she's riding her bike, either right beside me, right behind me, right in front of me. And we, you know, we call it our physical fitness. And so one of the things that, you know, has been really important to me now is that I instill that, that, um, just like the coat, you know, just like being a rescue swimmer, you have to be physically fit. You have to make it part of your day. Um, you have to be regimented. You have to be committed. You have to be disciplined. And I mean, I, I'm not making her do like, you know, I'm making her, I'm, I'm trying to instill that mentality. Yeah. And again, making I it feel fun. like, I, yeah, making it fun, but making it part of the day. I mean, it's just, a, it's non, it's non-negotiable. You got to do it. Right. Yeah. And that was what we, I mean, that was what we were trained to do in, you know, in the Coast Guard. And so yeah. again, just taking bits and pieces, transferring them into, in a, into a positive aspect of my life and leaving the darkness behind. Awesome. Dang, so. Todd. Man, Todd, thank you so much for sharing all this information with us and the cases yeah, and the stories and what you're doing now. Man, it, it never stops. It, you, you get into the swimmer world and it, it affects the rest of your life, whether you like it or not. <laughs> That's, it's, a, it's a unique brotherhood, right? I mean, yeah. brother and sisterhood, but I mean, it's a unique opportunity to be a part of really something, something big. And I, I, everybody I've ever told that, you know, they're like, oh, you, you were a rescue swimmer. I'm like, yeah, I was. It's a super proud moment. You know, like I don't, I've had proud moments before of other things. I'm mean, certainly getting my PhD was a really proud moment for me and my family. Cause it was like, yeah. uh, you know, accomplishing a huge task. I mean, uh, it was a, it was a really daunting and exhaustive task to finish that, but I mean, you know, it's good, but finishing rescue swimmer school still outweighs anything, you know, and like, <laughs> yeah, me too. Walk, I mean, there was four of us, you know, standing there in our, in our little, in our little outfits. And it was like, you know, I got a piece of paper and I still have it right over there on my wall. I mean, I literally got this little piece of paper. Right. And I mean, that is still literally the proudest moment yeah second i mean of, of all and then the second proudest moment was getting the qualification piece of paper that said i could actually go stand duty on my own you know yeah. like those two things are right there on my on my wall that i just <laughs> remember vividly and but my phd stuff is up there you know it, it's different but i mean those are literally the biggest accomplishments of my life that i still today hold very true and very honest about how honored i am to be a part of that and so you know, I'm, am I bummed that I didn't stay in and make it a career hundred percent, but perhaps that was what was necessary for me. You know, I only needed to do that, uh, you know, that amount of years, because if, it, if I did more then maybe I wouldn't be in the position that I am now. And maybe yeah. I wouldn't have found what I needed, you know, for that next chapter. But so, I mean, I'm not regretful. I'm just, um, for those that, you know, if, if, you, if you can stay in and make it a career, I've seen from people that it is, you know, it definitely allows you to live a little better and, and have more opportunities for sure. Dude, I love it. Man, this has been really great. I'm so proud of you for doing this. And I'm so oh, thankful that you're doing it because it's really, it's just a really great podcast. And it's, it's great to hear all of these people. I mean, Alan Yates was great to listen to. I yeah. followed him a little bit on social media, what he's doing. Um, you know, uh, it's just been great. So I'm really, I'm really thankful that you took this upon yourself and you're, you're burdening yourself with making this. Happen <laughs> it's, really, it's really great. You know, uh, it's, it's not, it's funny. It's not a burden. It, it, I yeah. love talking to you guys. I love the old school guys. I love listening to new school guys. I love 
the stuff that other guys and other agencies are doing around the world, it blows yeah. my mind every time I get it. I like, you're like, holy cow. Like, I, I can't believe you're doing that. That's, that's incredible. Like, so, and Todd, no, that's great. thank you for coming on and sharing your stories today. Uh, it was I really appreciate pleasure. It. So, and, uh, and we will be in touch outside of this. Right. I assure you that. So, all right. But y'all take care of yourself and thank you so much. I appreciate right. your time. Brother, anytime. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of here. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Real Rescue Podcast. Please take a minute to like, subscribe, and hit that share button. I'm pulling chocks and taking off. But before I go, if anyone out there has a rescue story they would be willing to share, I would be humbled and honored to have you on as a guest. Or if you have any questions about rescue or anything else we talk about here, send an email to jason at therealrescue.com. That's jason at T-H-E-R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q.com. You can also check us out on our web pages, therealrescue.com, our Facebook page, and our Instagram page, at The Real Rescue. Again, a special thank you to all of you standing on the watch today. Always remember... When that SAR alarm goes off, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. Until next time, fly safe and swim hard.